0: I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast of an evening with Ian Rankin, Proudly Powered by Spark. It's 30 years since the hard-boiled inspector Rebus was given his first airing in Knots and Crosses. Twenty-one instalments later, Rebus is still on the case, still living in Edinburgh, but seemingly off the fags. Rankin's work encompasses not only Tartan Noir, but short stories, a graphic novel, and a play. He is the recipient of four Crime Writers' Association Dagger Awards, the Grand Prix de Romain Noir from France and the Deutsche Crimmy Prize from Germany. He's in conversation with Mark Sainsbury in a session supported by Craig's Investment Partners. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm Mark Sainsbury. It's my, um, it's my great privilege to be leading this conversation tonight for an evening uh, with Ian Rankin. Um, Now, a couple of things, just to tell you. Uh, Social media, very big into social media here for the Auckland Writers Festival, but please bear in mind your fellow audience members. What's gonna happen, we are gonna be in conversation. This guy has got plenty to talk about. Um, I've just been in the green room and he he is such an interesting guy, and any of you were here last night would would know that as well. Um, But at the end, we are gonna leave some room for some questions. I do emphasize the word questions. Um, all of us are here because we're fans of Ian's, uh, but I think what we wanna know, if you've got some questions for him as opposed to just sharing the love. Um, we'll do enough of that over I, the I next. Don't
2: mind, I don't mind that at all. Over
1: the next hour. <laughs> How do you start to, so to describe um, someone like Ian Rankin? 21 installments, Rebus. Everyone you talk to knows Rebus. Your character is, is more famous than you. I was going to list out some of the awards that, um, that Ian has won, but by the time I got to the end, we'll be going straight to questions, so we might just have to slip past that. But we know, as those who read his books, uh, and the same with the critics, and the same with the people who dish out the accolades, um, that he is an incredibly successful writer. We're so lucky to have him here. He loves this country. You do, don't you? We, we like to hear that before we start, Ian.
2: Of course, yeah. <laughs> Well, a lot of similarities between New Zealand and Scotland. You know, we're both in bed with an elephant, aren't we? <laughs> you
1: know? Hey, do you like gigs like this? Do you like coming and doing things like this? Or is it a necessary
2: evil? I don't, I, I don't you know, I honestly don't think I've done a gig this size before. I mean, you know, I, when I do an event in Edinburgh, we get maybe 750. There's about 1,500 of you in here tonight, which is amazing. Um, I'd have to do two nights in Edinburgh to get that. Uh, I, I don't know, it's kind of mixed, isn't it? Because writers don't become writers because they are gregarious, outgoing people. We're the, we're the kind of shy, nerdy kids at school who would go home, sit in our bedrooms, listen to Pink Floyd and write poetry.
1: Was that you? Were you the, the yeah, geeky guy at school?
2: I was, ve- yeah, but I was very... No, I became a chameleon. I was very... Because I, w- I grew up in a pretty rough uh, village. It was a coal mining community. Everybody was coal miners in the early 60s. Um, and I was very, you know, I'd hang around the street corner wearing the, the kind of bover boots and all that kind of stuff with all the kind of skinheads and the gang. But when they said they were going to go and have a battle, a fight with the next village over, I'd say, Ah, guys, I've got to go home. Uh, and I would, you know, I'd go home, sit in my room and write about it.
1: So this you grew up in Fife? Yeah. And, and uh, was it the Lanarkshire Coalfields? I mean, your family, your father's family, were all miners.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, um, I mean in fact, we'd, the, it, Lanarkshire's in the west, and our family had kind of migrated from there to the east, to Fife, um, because coal had been discovered in the early 20th century. My dad was the youngest of, I think, five brothers, and the four older brothers all went down the mines, but my dad didn't. He got a job in a grocery shop. So, most of his life, he worked in a grocer's. Um, but, I mean, I did see the effect that mining had on people who worked in that industry. And I saw the effect um, on the village and on the community, communities around us when coal ended, which it did around about 1970.
1: So, there'd been, I mean, as you say, with your father's brothers, that was just the life you went into, he, he broke the mould. What was expected of you? Um, well,
2: I mean, I was the brainy one. I was the first member of my family to go to university, to go to higher education. And so, around about the age of 16, 17, when the school said, Ian, you're, you've got the kind of qualifications to go into university. Um, my parents thought, oh, this is lovely. Ian will do accountancy or become a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist because that's what working class kids did. They got a trade. They went to university to get a trade and come out and get a good job. And up until the age of 17, I was gonna study accountancy because I had one uncle who lived in England who was an accountant and he owned his own car <laughs> and, and he owned his own house and I thought, whoa, because my parents never owned their own house and never owned a car and I just thought, I want some of that, I'll do accountancy. And then um, the results came in of some of my exams and I hadn't done very well in economics and I thought, why are you doing this? You're only going to university to study this to get a job, you're not doing it because you've got any passion for it at all. So I had to break the news to my parents that I wanted to do English. And they said, well, what kind of career will you get with an English degree? And I said, teaching? That was all I could think of, to say was teaching. Um, And that was gonna be it. You know, so I went off to Edinburgh University blithely to study English language and literature.
1: But you, writing and and conjuring up things, I suppose, I remember reading, you. you talked about growing up playing God. You were reimagining your world and making it more exciting, more evocative. That was what all writers do.
2: Yeah, I mean, right from the get-go, I was a fr- pretty nerdy kid, and I was a pretty obsessive kid, so it wasn't enough to... There weren't many books in the house, but um, I-, I was indulged. I was allowed to read lots of comics, and so Batman and Superman. But there was a whole, whole school of kind of classic British comics as well that came out of Dundee. In Scotland, D.C. Thompson was the company that did them. The Victor, the Hotspur, the Dandy, the Beano, there were all loads of them. And it wasn't enough to read them. I wanted to write them as well. So I would get sheets of paper and fold them in half, fold them in half again, cut the edges to make little booklets, break them up into squares, put little stick people in the squares with tiny little speech bubbles. Um, and to make them more interesting and more evocative, I would put free gifts on the front. So I would, <laughs> I would make a badge from a piece of cardboard and some sticky tape and a, a safety pin, free badge this week in the comic, and I would show them to my mum and my dad. They were the only, you know, they'd be limited to one copy of each of these. Um, and, and my dad would say, Ian, you, you, you just can't draw, you <laughs> know. <laughs> was he right? Yeah, he was totally right. I, if I was going to go and become a comic book artist, my hero would have to be Stickman, you know, because that was about as good as it got. Um, but luckily, around that time, I got into pop music. And, and so I, and I did, you know, what I, do, what I did, what I did. I invented a band in my head called the Amoebas, and they existed only in my head and on paper but I would plan their world tours, so I'd get an atlas and decide where they were gonna play, and you know, Auckland, Bishop Auckland, you name it, they'd go everywhere. And I would have a top 10 every week, which meant inventing nine other bands, and I wrote their song lyrics, and I designed their album sleeves, and you know, and the lead singer was called Ian Caput. <laughs> and I just did it all, in my, and it was all in my head, you know, but it was, it was what you've just said, it was, it was creating a, an alternate universe where you could make extraordinarily exciting things happen. And that's what literature was to me. But this
1: is not, this wasn't to escape from something, this was just
2: you had so much in your head. No, but it is escapism, isn't it? I mean, I had this tiny wee bedroom in a council house in a tiny wee mining community. But inside my head, I could be manning a spaceship. I could be fighting lizards. You know, I could be the President of the United States. Um, now, we know that's ridiculous, <laughs> because I, I, got, I did well at university, uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but you know, I just, all these advent, it was just a, a way of, you know, a fairly mundane life, I mean, it was a very safe existence, it was a very safe community, uncle and aunts over the back fence, uncle and aunts two houses away that way cousins all over the place, it was tribal, it was contained, it was claustrophobic, um, and I felt different.
1: But you seem to be able to manage that, because as you said, you'd be the, the people you're hanging out in the street corner, they're all off for a fight. You're able to somehow, oh, I've got something else to do and sort of slip away. I mean, you, you, but you managed to maintain not getting ostracized from the, the rough kids.
2: Yeah, no, no, I, I got very good at that. I got very good at the chameleon thing of looking like I fitted in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but that was just a self-defense thing. That was just a self-defense thing. So they wouldn't look at me and go, weirdo. Yeah. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, Sandy, who was the first punk in our village. And um, <laughs> I mean, he got, he got, he, got belt, he got battered for it. You know, people would beat him up because he was a punk. Because um, he looked different and he was weird and different. And I thought, I don't want that. I don't want to be beaten up. And my parents, I mean, I was sitting there in my bedroom writing poetry. And there was a poetry competition. And I went in for it and won second prize and the first inkling my parents got that I was writing poetry was when it was announced in the newspaper. It was in the Dundee Courier newspaper, you know, and my mum said, is that you? Ian, <laughs> Ian Rankin, 17, from Craigmead Terrace, Carton then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Um, I don't know what she thought I was doing in my bedroom, you know, because <laughs> sitting there quietly, hour after hour, and when she came in with a cup of tea, I'd be stuffing the poetry under the bed. I think my parents were worried I was a drug addict, you know, and I would have been much, I'm more sanguine saying, yes, I'm a drug addict than to say, actually, I'm a poet.
1: Well, in speaking of your poetry, the opening line for one of them was, mutated machine guns (laughs) patrolling the subways while glue-sniffing kids hang themselves in subways. Lift shafts. It was lift shafts. How did you find that out?
2: I thought that was destroyed, that poem. That was yeah. That Sorry, left chaff. Yes. Yeah, that was that was that was written when I got to when I was at university. Quite a dark. I mean, you know, the first poem I wrote was called Euthanasia. For God's sake, it, a, a very. <laughs> it was dark. It was dark, dark, dark stuff. Now, where does that come from? I've no idea. But I'd always looked at the world in that way. Um, and yeah, that was one of the songs we did in my band, the Dancing Pigs. The second, the second best punk band in five.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> there were two punk bands in five. There was us and there was the Skids, and the Skids were much better than us. Um, what was your role in the punk band? Uh, I was the vocalist. singer would be putting it too strongly. <laughs> yeah. I was the vocalist. Um, and that had been written as a poem. I'd gone along to the Edinburgh University Poetry Society and read that out as a poem. And then I was invited to join this punk band and it just became the, the lyric of one of our songs.
1: When did you think that, you know, literally there was a future? I mean, did you see that? Did you see you could have, uh, make a living, you could have a career, no, you could spend well, your life writing?
2: I didn't know anybody who did. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, at university, I got to meet a few writers, but they all had other jobs. They were academics or they were, you know, librarians, teachers, you name it. Um, I didn't know anybody who really made a, f- a proper full-time living from writing, so it was quite a long time before I realized you could do that. And in the early days, it was a hobby, and then it was a paid hobby. And then when I got married, my wife was supporting me. She had a full-time job and she supported me while I tried to be a full-time writer. And it was 1990 um, before I went full-time because she said, we've got to get out of London. We hate London, let's get out of London. And she moved us to France. She persuaded, she said, let's go and live in France. And neither of us had a job. So all the money we had was what I was earning from the books. Did you speak French? I spoke no French, I, I got a C for standard grade, uh, or O grade, O level, um, and I had been in 1976, and this was now um, 1990. Uh, no, my French was appalling and still is, even though I lived there for six years. And, and because we lived in Southwest France, surrounded by farmers, um, my, my French, when I, say, when I speak French now, it, I sound like a farmer. I don't speak like a, a Parisian intellectual. I speak like I'm having a conversation about tractors (laughs) uh, because that's what I did when I lived in France, we'd have conversations about tractors. Uh, I remember running down to the local village to tell them um, that my wife was pregnant and I burst into the bakery and said, ma femme, ma femme est ancien, elle est ancien, which means ancient. (laughs) What I would meant to say was enceinte, ancien, enceinte, and the baker's going, enceinte, ah oui, enceinte, (laughs) excusez-moi, I can order a beer. I can order a beer in pretty much any language in the world.
1: You like that life? You like the French? You like the French rural folk?
2: I liked, I mean, I got a lot of writing done. There was nothing else to do. But um, it wasn't, I mean, I, I didn't feel comfortable. I mean, partly because I found languages difficult, always have done. And when I, you make your living from language and from precision in language, to not be able to use language well is really embarrassing. So I would actually say nothing rather than say something
1: and get it wrong. So, what's the point of going to rural France to write about (laughs) where you came from? Um, You'd have to ask
2: my wife that question. uh, I've always done what I'm told, and uh, I think, you know, it's the secret of a happy, long marriage. Um, You know, uh, she said, you'll get a lot done, you know, you'll get a lot written, and she was right. I was writing two books a year. So, most of the early Rebus novels were written out there, and the three novels I wrote as Jack Harvey, the kind of pseudonymous thrillers were all written there as well. So, I got a lot of writing done, and what I would do is I would then go back, and you see, the thing is, I thought I had to get away from Edinburgh to write fiction about Edinburgh, you know? I thought, how can you write about Edinburgh if you're living there? It will become reportage. It will be journalism. It's almost too easy. So, I thought the further I get away from Edinburgh, the the, the better the fiction will be, Um, but I would go back. I was sitting in in the, the attic of our house in France. It was a ramshackle old farmhouse, but the attic was where I had my little office, and I had bus maps of Edinburgh, postcards, photographs, all pinned up to the walls. And I would go back once or twice a year to do the research and check that I was getting the details right. Um, So I was still going back, Uh, but I did get a lot done. And, you know, we were there six years, six
1: years was long enough. Look, tell me, when you're writing, say you write one of those stories, do you, (coughs) Do you have, do you, do you work out the structure first? I mean, are you one of those writers who just starts writing and it evolves, or do you have the structure of a story in your head and then you start sort of filling it in? A, a lot of people think the crime
2: novel is like a puzzle, like a geometric shape, and you must start at the end and work your way backwards. So for example, if you were doing a crossword, you would make the grid, you would fill in the words, and then you would find clues for the words. That's not the way I work, and quite a lot of crime writers don't work that way. I start with a theme I want to explore, a crime that allows me to explore that theme. Then I wonder which character or characters do I need to tell this story, but I don't know what's going to happen. I've got, a, I've got the crime, but I don't always know who did it. So in the latest book, for example, um, I was about two-thirds of the way through the first draft before I worked out that a minor character was actually a major character. And so when I start writing the book, I know as little as the detective and the first draft is me being the detective finding out what the hell is going on here. And when I, in the rare cases when I think I do know what the ending's going to be, the novel um, has its own ideas. So for example, I was going to write three novels, this is a while ago now, I was going to write three rebus novels about the coming of the Scottish Parliament. I'd, I signed a three-book deal, I thought the Parliament is coming, three books, that'll be great. In book one, we'll have a guy who's running to be an MSP, a member of the Scottish Parliament, In book two, he's elected. In book three, the parliament has been built and they've all moved in. Fine, except 60 pages into book one, he was dead. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't want it to happen, and I didn't mean it to happen. Of course not. I, I already had a murder mystery that I was working on, but the book said, you don't need this guy. Yet this guy's superfluous. So he just, you know, somebody walked, I thought, what's happening here? Oh, someone's just walked in and told Rebus, this guy's dead, shoot.
1: So these two evolve, this evolves. And do you you dedicate so much time a day to writing? Um, Well, the beauty of
2: being a full-time writer is you don't need to do that. Um, If the writing is going well, I'll stick at it. If it's not going well, I won't force it. I'll go for a walk, I'll go to to the cafe, go to the pub, try again later. Sometimes a good working day starts at eight o'clock at night. I've tried in the morning, it's not happening. Tried in the afternoon, it's not happening. Suddenly, eight o'clock, everything clicks, and you still get three or four hours done. Um, but there are days when nothing happens. There are days uh, when it flows. I find as I get older, and I know an, an, a few other writers are finding the same thing, I can't sit. I mean, I used to sit eight or 10 hours at a stretch writing, and now after about 45 minutes to an hour, I'm, I'm getting starting to get tired. I need to take a little break and, and just go for a walk, come back, do another hour but an hour is about as long as I can concentrate now. Whereas when I was young and full of vim and vigor, I could, um, I could sit there for eight, 10 hours.
1: The other thing I was thinking about, I was reading your, uh, going back over your collection of short stories, and the very first one, I think, in, in that collection, Dead and Buried, was set in the 80s, but you wrote it a lot later. So is it hard to go back to, especially when you've got a character like Rebus, you've now got to put yourself back in the 80s because the character has evolved and changed, how, I mean, is that all just in your head that you can channel Rebus 80s, mid 80s? Because the temptation would be to sort of forget different things, wouldn't it? Or, or the characters sure. evolved yeah. in a different way.
2: Well, I mean, when we first met him, uh, the first book came out in '87. Was written sort of '85, so you know, I can remember what he was like then when he was about 40 years old. I can remember, I can remember that Rebus, and I can go back and read those books and get that Rebus again. Um, the part of the fun of the books for me, though, is oh, two things. I've enjoyed writing about him in real time, so that when I, well, each new book is like a different rebus. People say, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it excited? It's because this is a new guy. When I sit down to write the next book, he has aged, he has changed. I've got to take that on board, so that keeps it fresh. And I like playing the past against the present. I like having some crime that happened a long time ago, um, and what does that tell us about the people we were then? and what has changed since. What has changed about us as human beings? What has changed about society? What has changed about Edinburgh and Scotland? Um, So I love doing that. And in the new book, the latest one, um, one of the crimes happened in uh, October 78, which happens to be when I arrived in Edinburgh as a student. So I just wanted to write about that month in my life and I've got my diaries from then. So I could go back to my diary, my page a day diary, and see what I felt about Edinburgh and what gigs were on and stuff like that. Are
1: people quick to point it out if you do get something wrong? Oh, yeah.
2: Come on. <laughs> oh. um, I mean, there's been lots of them. I mean, not even things that are wrong, but I, I, somebody a long time ago said, how come there's always a trestle table in your books? <laughs> and ever since they pointed that out, I can't do it anymore. There's no more, no, <laughs> you know. Someone said, all the cars in your books are red. Oh, so no more red cars. Um, the, the, you know, there's been things like in one book, someone goes from being a detective and s- detective sergeant to constable and back to sergeant again. Uh, in one book, I've got the wrong singer for a song, a, a, a pop song. Um, the, the one I really like is the when I was writing the books in France, I had a little foot rail at the front of the Oxford bar, a real pub in Edinburgh where Rebus drinks when I drink, little foot rail you could put your rest your foot on while you're drinking your pint. Turned out I'd misremembered. It wasn't at the front of the bar, it was down the side of the bar. And for years afterwards, people would say, you know, you put that foot rail in there, and uh, so anyway, Harry, God bless him, who owns the Oxford Bar, has installed
1: a foot rail <laughs> at the front of the Oxford Bar. That is Bar. fantastic. So we'll, uh, is it true that you insert characters into your books? People can...
2: Yeah, real people. Not buy their yeah. way in, but there's a... Yeah, people do buy their way in. Yeah, they don't, they don't pay me, they pay charity. Um, mm, about five or six times a book, and I've done it for years now, you know, we'll auction off the right to be in the book for, for a charity. And then I'll just contact the winner and say, okay, tell me a little bit about yourself. Do you want to be a goodie, a baddie? What do you want? You know, one uh, businesswoman wanted to be a high-class brothel madame. And um, I said, well, I'm halfway through the book and I can't see a scene for a brothel, but I could make you a cheap pole dancer in a strip club. And she went, yeah, great, okay, let's go for it. So, um, a woman paid for her cat, Boethius, to be in a book, and she sent me photographs of the, the cat and a psychological <laughs> breakdown of the cat, so I, it would be her cat. It wouldn't just be a cat called Boethius, it would be her cat. Um, uh, uh, let me just
1: ask you, how many of you here would pay to be in one of Ian's books?
2: Yeah, um, quite a few, quite a few. There I'll you collect go.
1: the money off you later yeah, on. Yeah, really, I know.
2: I can only do it a few times a book. Uh, my favourite one though, is I mean, it's a, it's a longish story. I'll keep it as short as I can. There was a charity in London and they said, okay, here's the, here's the winner's email address. His name is Peacock Johnson. I went, what? Um, so I, I went to his website and there was this guy looking really dodgy. Can he slick back hair, Elvis Las Vegas shades, loud Hawaiian shirt, Wh- what? So I emailed him and said, look, I don't know what I'm going to do with you, pal, but, you know, uh, he said, I don't care, good guy, bad guy, but can you please mention my friend Wee Evil Bob? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, in the book, which was called um, A Question of Blood, I needed a gun runner, a guy selling guns illegally in Scotland. I thought, great. It's cause, so he, there he is, Peacock Johnson in the book, and his henchman, his bodyguard is Wee Evil Bob. Fantastic. <laughs> I loved writing about them. So I got in touch afterwards, excited, let say, I'd love to write about these characters again. Email bounced back. Oh, went to his website. Website no longer exists. Oh. So I turned detective, worked out that the band playing at this charity event were Bell and Sebastian, a fairly well-known Scottish band, and their bass player is a notorious practical joker. So I got in touch with the bass player, Stuart David, and he said, Yeah, that was me. I said, So wait a minute. I thought I was making a real person fictitious but I was making a fictitious person fictitious. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I just created that whole thing. I mean, it just (laughs) didn't exist. I went, well, can I write about the character again? He said, no, you can't. He said, because I'm now gonna write a book about Peacock Johnson, and it's online. If you Google Peacock Mm. Johnson or Stuart David, you'll find it. It's free, you can download it and read it. In his book, a small-time Glasgow crook called Peacock Johnson is framed for murder. Runs home to his wife and says, what the hell am I gonna do? and she points at the TV set and says, go to Edinburgh and see this guy. And it's an episode of Rebus is playing on TV. (laughs) So he jumps on a train, goes to Edinburgh, goes to the Oxford bar, walks in and says, I need to speak to Inspector Rebus. And they say, he's a fictitious character. (laughs) Um, But Ian Rankin's in the back room. (laughs) So Ian Rankin helps Peacock Johnson prove his innocence.
1: I was wondering if anyone would sort of buy, you know, say, say yes, I'm going to donate the charity, but I'm going to name someone who I hate and want you to make them the most reptilian <laughs> character in a book.
2: I don't think I would do that. But a friend of mine did do that once a few years, quite a few years ago. She was a Canadian sports journalist and crime writer. And a guy dumped her, a baseball player, quite a well-known baseball player, dumped her in quite ignominious circumstances. So she contacted all her crime writing friends around the world and said, here's the guy's name have something really horrible happen to him in your next book?" And she sat back and waited. She waited till we'd all written our next books, we'd all published our next books, we sent them to her. She got this big box and she put a little post-it note every time this guy was mentioned in all these crime novels from all around the world in which this guy was stabbed, garrotted had <laughs> his head. You know. I made him, uh, I made him a, a gorilla at Edinburgh Zoo with impotence. <laughs> <laughs> I went pretty easy on him. I went pretty easy on him. Um, Val McDermott stuck a broken bottle up his arse, I think. <laughs> anyway. Isn't that great? <laughs> I wish I'd been there when that guy opened that box and went, What the hell is all this?"
1: Uh, rebus. I revenge mean we all... is a,
2: revenge is a dish served cold. Thirty years in. Yeah man.
0: Thirty I
2: years. I don't look it, right? I don't no. look it. No, no I know. I know. I know. Yeah, who knew? I mean, I didn't know. I mean, the first draft of the first book, which sadly I no longer have, I don't know what happened to it, but I can't find it. He died at the end. He was shot and killed at the end of the first book. So, luckily, I changed that. (laughs) I mean, I did. And then the next lucky thing that happened was when the first book was published very soon afterwards, um, an actor got in touch through my agent and said he wanted to put knots uh, and crosses on tv but the actor's name was leslie grantham and he played dirty Dan in a soap called eastenders yeah. and what he wanted to do was to take the story to london and play rebus as a london cop now that all fell through because my agent disappeared in mysterious circumstances <laughs> true story um <coughs> that all fell through but if that had happened i would really probably never have written another rebus book
1: you weren't happy were you originally with the first book with with rebus you thought that it's overwritten.
2: I mean, it's written by an English literature PhD student, Paul. you know. It's, um, there's, there are sentences in it I don't understand now when I look back <laughs> at them. Uh, honestly, there's a phrase, the manumission of dreams, I've no idea what that means. Um, I just thought it looked good, I'll put that in. Uh, no, I wasn't happy with it, it was overwritten. It was overwritten. And you know, the, 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 the murder was solved because of a professor of literature at the university and all this kind of stuff. It was a game, that, and I didn't really know him, I didn't know Rebus, he was just a means of telling a story. But, and I I went away and did other books, I did a spy novel and a thriller, and then my editor said, whatever happened to that guy, I liked him. And I thought, oh good, well, I liked him as well, maybe I'll do a second book. And then I was living in London and I hated London, so in the third book I took Rebus to London so he could hate it as well. (laughs) And by then I was three books in. (laughs) And by then I discovered something, I discovered that a detective is the perfect way of looking at society. I wanted to write about Scotland, I wanted to write about Edinburgh, I wanted to write about the human condition, I wanted to write about politics, I wanted to write about poverty, I wanted to write about social issues. A detective has an access, all areas pass, from the people at the very top to the people at the very bottom. And there's no other character in fiction, with the possible
1: exception of a journalist, who would allow you that level of access. So as you're writing those books, is that part of, I mean, do you, are you conscious of that as well? That that, that, that if you like, the, um, the magnifying glass you're putting on society, the things that you're bringing up in the book. Are you, do you, are you, does that just become automatically or do you deliberately look at trying to do that?
2: Well, I mean, I'm not a politician and I'm not a polemicist. It doesn't bother me if you don't get it. As a reader, if you don't get that this is actually a book about asylum seekers or this is a book about racism or this is a book about um, religious bigotry, you know, it doesn't bother me too much. But that is an extra layer that's there. Um, And usually the stories begin, or the novel begins, with something that I've read in a newspaper, something that's happened in the real world, something somebody's told me, and it gets me thinking of why would that happen, or what if that happened here? And what does that say about us as a society? What does that say about us as human beings, that these things happen? Um, And also Scotland, you know, I want to explore Scotland, I want to try and make sense of the country, I want to try and make sense of Edinburgh. So each book for me is a little piece of a jigsaw.
1: In terms of Scotland, um, of course, I mean, Brexit, which has changed everything. You were sort of, I mean, whatever, you were sort of almost on the fence over, yeah. because I think you said at the time, <laughs> those guys who used to, um, used to hang out with the big boots and go off and beat people up might come visiting again. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a tricky thing to take a position on, although in the book, Rebus, who was the small C conservative, is, yeah. is anti, and Siobhan is, is pro-independence. Did you have a view? Um, I did, but I don't really talk about it. But I think if you put Rebus, Siobhan, and
2: Fox together in a blender, you would get my politics. Mm. You know? Um, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waverable, I'm persuadable, um, I'm a kind of liberal at heart, I think. I'm, I'm a wishy-washy liberal, Rebus would hate me. He's, he is quite conservative in his thinking, he likes the status quo, he fears change. Siobhan is younger, more idealistic, she welcomes the possibility of change, Fox is very cautious, He's weighing up the pros and cons right to the final minute before he walks into the voting booth. You've got to put all those in a blender, and that, you get my personality. You get the kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing that goes on with me all the time, the, the tension between heart and head. I mean, Scots are, are like that. The Scots often, you know, they're passionate, and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're zealous, and they're forthright, but they're also cautious. There is that kind of thing between the Jekyll and the Hyde um, in all of us, I think. Um, Brexit, we don't know what it means yet. Nobody knows what Brexit means yet. It's a very frustrating time for novelists. Novelists can't really use this until the dust has settled. We're very good, unless we're science fiction writers, we're very good at looking back at what's happened and explaining it to you or explaining it to ourselves or trying to make sense of it. But while it's ongoing and it's a kind of maelstrom, it's very hard to say
1: what's going to happen. From here, we get the sense that for a lot of Scots, they're going, well, hang on a minute. This has changed everything. You know, if, if, if you're out of the EU, well, we're out of the Union. Is that a, is, is, I mean, uh, this is what we're seeing here. Is that hmm. what you, you pick up there? Is there, is there a strong no, sense think, of that?
2: No, I think there's a, there's a much more nuanced debate than that, that's being, that's, 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 that's going on because um, what does it mean to give up the majority of your trade with England to, to pick up, uh, a lesser part of your trade with the EU and what does that do if you're if you're in the EU but not in the UK what does that do your trade with England Wales and Northern Ireland um, you know what kind of borders are in place and what sort of tariffs are in place we don't know any of that yet um, and how quickly we get into the EU is, is a moot point I mean it could take it could be very quick it could be quite lengthy nobody knows nobody can answer that what currency do we use nobody seems to know um, so there's quite a lot that still is 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 uncertain, and um, there's a lot of uncertainty with Brexit. But you would compound that uncertainty by saying that you're also going you're going to leave the UK. So when, you know we could do with some certainty, we could do with some kind of calm, and we could do with rational minds, and we could do with people giving us the statistics. And it isn't quite happening yet. Nobody, you know, everybody, nobody knows what any of this stuff's going to mean. And I think the Scots would probably rather wait. I think the I I don't know. The polls seem to suggest Scots want to wait and see what Brexit means, and once we know what Brexit means, then we'll decide if we want another uh, referendum or not.
1: What would Rebus be thinking now?
2: Oh, he'd throw his hands up in horror and go to the pub, (laughs)
1: Um,
2: which I think is kind of what the majority of people think anyway. You know, just get on with your life. You know, we just want to get on with our lives. We want to. We want just. You know, none of this. None of this. uh, As long as we can go for a pint, as long as we can go to the shops and buy stuff, as long as we can put our kids through. Uh, school and college, you know, then the majority of people are happy. Could you kill him off? It's going to have to happen. I mean, whether I'm around to see it or not, I don't know. I mean, he might outlive me. <laughs> could he continue after you? Of course he can. Look at Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's, I mean, honestly, look at Poirot. Poirot's got a new lease of life. Um, people keep writing about James Bond. People keep writing about, about um, uh, Holmes. Um, yeah, he could or that could be the young Rebus. I mean, God knows what will happen. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't see an end point. I, I've thought about killing him off before, and I, I've never quite managed to do it. I did, when he retired the first time at the end of Exit Music, I really thought that was it. You know, I thought in real life he would retire, this is it. Um, and only, I only brought him back because I got an idea for a book that was about a cold case, an unsolved case, and there was a real unit in Edinburgh staffed by retired detectives, and those retired detectives looked into cold cases, and I thought, okay, do I invent a new retired detective? I've already got one. And this is, this is what Rebus would be doing. He couldn't just walk away from the police, so he would have applied to join this unit. I'd have brought him back. I thought of other things I could do with him. He's now retired again. So there's limited stuff I can do with him now he's retired. And can I imagine him at 75 in a care home in his electric wheelchair, <laughs> going around solving the case of the missing spectacles? You know, maybe, I don't know. Caffert is in there as well, yeah. you know, the two of them are going around in their electric wheelchairs fighting, bashing each other with their walking sticks. I don't know. I don't, I, I've, I've not, i have i have I only think one book ahead. There has never been a plan and there never will be a plan.
1: When you were researching and when you were creating this character, I mean, did you talk to real cops? I mean, or... Yeah. I mean,
2: not. I don't, I don't hang around with real cops much because I don't want the books to become public relations exercises. But I do have people I can talk to if I've got a problem or a concern. Um, and I do get invited to a lot of retirement parties. And there was a book I wrote called Saints of the Shadow Bible, which was about Rebus as a young cop and all the guys he learned from, the guys who mentored him. And half the stories in that book were true stories I was told at retirement parties. They'd be standing, these guys would be talking, they'd be giving anecdotes about the way it was in the 70s and 80s, and I'd go, great story. I'd say, excuse me, I'd go to the toilet, I'd type it into my phone so I wouldn't forget it. <laughs> I'd go back and go, whoa, whoa, what's this one you're telling me? Just got to go to, the to- I think they thought, Ian's got prostate problems. He needs to, <laughs> every five minutes, he's away to the loo again, you know? I'd type it in my phone, it was fantastic stuff. The chief of police, we've had the boring stuff, but they restructured the police in Scotland a few years ago, which is a pain in the arse if you're writing about a detective, because the normal detectives like Siobhan Clark wouldn't investigate murders anymore, a crack team would be parachuted in from police HQ. Um, well, that's a problem, but it's also an opportunity because then you've got the kind of tensions between these incomers and the local cops. But the chief of police of this new Police Scotland uh, contacted all of the crime writers in Scotland and invited us out to dinner, so he could apologise for the fact <laughs> that he was going to screw up our entire enterprise uh, and to and to. Ask us, please don't think any less of us, and please don't diss us in your books.
1: This is not true.
2: Yeah. Um, Stuart McBride was there, and Sarah Sheridan, and me, and Lynn Anderson, and I mean, he got as many as he could. Uh, And he told us, you know, this is all for the best, honest, and please don't diss us in your books too much.
1: Do you hang out with other Scottish riders? I mean, you live near a few, don't you? I mean, I think J.K. Rowling's in the uh, neighborhood. Joe jo
2: Rowling's moved. She's moved across town. She used to live at the top of the road. Um, Alexander McCall Smith lives two houses away. We don't see each other that much because, he's, you know, if I'm on tour, he's there, and if, I, if he's on tour, I'm there. So I don't see him as much as you might think. Um, there, were, there have been, or there were in the past, days when all three of us would been in the same cafe at the same time. Um, Kate Atkinson also lives about half a mile away. Irvin Welsh doesn't live in Edinburgh but visits quite a lot. I don't see a lot of them. I do see a lot of crime writers. I mean, a lot, you know, you go to festivals and you tend to be grouped with other crime writers, and we do like hanging out with each other. Um, So we do get together. Ian Banks, no longer with us, God bless him. I used to, um, we used to go out for drinks and curries together. It was a bunch of us used to go out, and we still go out with the kind of Ian Banks Memorial Evening where we go out and we we, kind of pretend he's still with us. Um, And we talk about him and we, we tell anecdotes and we, drink a few whiskies and we eat some curry. Um, I like hanging out with writers, they're pretty interesting people. And, um, you know, we don't always talk, it's not like going through, yeah, it's not like sitting with Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre. We tend to talk about the same things everybody else. We talk about, where, where, you know, where would you get a good curry? Football, you know, uh, politics, blah, 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 boring stuff.
1: Do you, I mean, what about when you read other people's books? Can you you read someone else's book and enjoy it? Or are you thinking, oh, that plot line's going awry and that character's a bit weak? Or, oh, damn it, they're better than me. I
2: think I'm pretty good at switching off. (laughs) I mean, yeah, damn it, they're better than me. That happens occasionally. (laughs) Um, That keeps you on your toes. I like that, it keeps you on your toes, all these young whippersnappers coming up with their great ideas and great characters. I'm pretty good at switching off and reading it as a reader first. I'll give you an example of that, Gone Girl. Gone Girl I read as a reader. And I thought, at the end I thought, how the hell did she do that? And I went back to the beginning and read it as a writer, looking at the mechanics of it, looking at the plotting, looking at how it was structured. But when I first read it, I just tore through it like a reader would because it was a great book. It was a great mechanism, beautiful piece of work, beautifully engineered um, thriller. And I'm, I'm not very good at doing those high-concept thrillers. You know the thing where you can do the elevator pitch? Mm. You, can, you can give the book in six words or less or whatever. Um, I can't do that. My books are much more kind of well. It might be... It's why I don't do much in TV and film, because these people, the the producers, always want to know everything that's going to happen before you start. And I only know what's going to happen once I've started writing the book.
1: On TV, because they're looking at another series, aren't they, Rebus?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, I got the rights back, because I didn't like the way it was being done. Um, It started off, it it was a long, protracted thing. Originally, Leslie Grantham. Then the BBC got hold of it, and they said, who do you think who, you, who should play Rebus? And I went, I don't know. I don't know what he looks like. I say, he's been in, he's been in the army. He's trained for the SES. He's been pretty fit at one time. You know, they went, yeah, we're thinking of Robbie Coltrane.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but Robbie Coltrane went and did Cracker instead. Um, and then John Hanna's production company picked it up, and the TV people said, we will make it if you play Rebus. And he wasn't keen. He, wasn't, he didn't think he was right for the part, but he did it got made, and it was two hours, two hours per book. Then he left to go to Hollywood, and they persuaded Ken Stott to do it, but they took it down to one hour per book. Now, one hour with ad breaks is actually 45 minutes, so it's a 45-page script. So the first thing I did was chuck out all the plot, (laughs) and the theme, and the nuance, and the character development, and the sense of place, and just did one kind of twisty, one twist, and Rebus is the main character, and that was about it. So I didn't like that. Um, I never watched it, I've never watched an episode, but I knew this was, wasn't right. So I got the rights back. Now, a TV company has now come forward after, it's been, it's been off screens for a few years now, and said they want to do it properly, they want to do it over six hours, eight hours, 10 hours per book. And they brought in a really great wow. screenwriter um, called Gregory Burke. Now, Gregory Burke did a play called Black Watch, which was a huge hit worldwide. Um, he did a film called 71, which is about a British squaddy behind the lines in Northern Ireland. Um, he's a really, really good writer. He's from Fife, same part of the world as me. Um, I've met him, we got on well together. So the omens are quite good. Will it be Ken Stott? I don't know. Um, if they don't make any more Hobbit films, maybe. <laughs> he was quite busy down here for a while making The Hobbit. Um, four hours of makeup. Um, I remember uh, uh, Stephen Fry, who was in one of my, one of my TV films, told me the story that he was also in one of the Hobbits, at least one of the Hobbits, and he said he, he didn't have as much makeup, you know, um, Ken had four hours of makeup, and he said he walked into the makeup room one morning, Ken had been there since 5 a.m., this is now 8.30, sitting in a chair in makeup, he walks in and he says, and how are you doing today, Ken? And Ken looks and goes, how the fuck do you think I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so kind of classic Ken Stott. If you, go to, if you ever go to the Oxford bar, as you walk in, you'll see a photograph of Ken Stott above the bar, he walked in one day for a pint before he went to Heart of Midlothian football match and, uh, and they got a photograph of him. So you've got a photograph of Rebus in the Oxford bar, which is quite nice. You know, the only, I, the only reason he did that show, I think, is because he got to come back to Edinburgh and they, they filmed it during football season and he loves Heart of Midlothian. What he didn't know was, for a laugh, for a laugh, the um, script so the very first one he did, made Rebus a Hibernian football fan, which is the <laughs> antithesis. <coughs> you know, Hibs and Hearts the two teams. He's a, he's a Hearts fan, they made him a Hibs fan, and the first thing they made him do on TV was wear a Hibs scarf and walk onto the pitch of the Hibernian football ground <laughs> and look really happy to be there. And he said in an interview, it's the hardest thing he's ever done as an actor, is look pleased to be in Easter Road wearing a Hibs scarf. I said to him, you've played Hitler in a film. <laughs> You found it easier to get inside the head of Adolf Hitler than to play a
1: Hibernian football fan. Yep. I wonder about you and Rebus. Is Rebus in your head or are you in his?
2: I, I, I wonder that sometimes. I do wonder that. Um, I mean, he's in my head. He's in my head. You know, all the years I wasn't writing about him, the five years when he retired. Um, when it came time to write the, the comeback book, I thought, oh, will he still be there? Is his voice still there? And I sat down with a blank sheet of paper, and he just leapt. It was like I'd unlocked a little cell in my head, and he came, he came out screaming. He just came out, he was so happy to be, be back again. So he lives in my head. Um, when I'm writing the books, I think, you know, it's like I'm looking over his shoulder. Everywhere he goes, I'm looking over his shoulder. And it changes me. My wife said, you know, when, when I'm writing the books, I'm hell to live with, my wife says. I come downstairs, I eat dinner, I go back upstairs again to start writing again, and it's like I'm hardly there, I'm barely there. Um, there are kind of moments in our kids' lives that I don't remember because I was so focused on a book that I wasn't. I was I was physically there, physically present, but actually in my head I was in Rebus's world.
1: I asked before about you know the the, the killing him off and whether it's possible or me because you, I, I'd imagine. <clears throat> <laughs> Before, when he retired, I mean, you would get a lot of people writing to you, or people asking for him, bring him back. I mean, people
0: take That's ownership, weird, don't they, If you Yeah, characters. yeah,
2: and I mean, you know, people make the pilgrimage from all over the world, and they go to the Oxford bar, and they're always disappointed to meet me <laughs> because I'm not him. I mean, I'm not as conflicted as him. I'm not as dark and brooding and dangerous as him. I'm not as interesting as him. Um, I'm not as, dan- you know, I just, I'm not him. And so they can come and have a drink with me, but it's nothing like the, 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 the experience they would have if they had a drink with Rebus.
1: You see, I like, I mean, there's, there's funny little things. I mean, we all have our own, everyone has their own Rebus story. I mean, I like the fact, the SAS part, because it's not, you know, usually any book where someone's been in the SAS or the seals or something, they're into it with a hammer, you know, and it's got to yeah. be, uh, they're all, you know, it, whereas I just like the idea there was, hang on there was bits in his background that you were gradually learning all the way through. Yeah. And, and, but it was, it was nicely nuanced. It wasn't this Yeah, and, he's, and, and, you know, he's gone to seed
2: since then. I mean, he's you know, the, the Rebus we met when he was 40 in Book 1 was physically aggressive. He was threatening. He could use his bulk and his demeanor to, 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 to threaten uh, a suspect or to get answers to questions. Now, he ain't that guy anymore. The world has changed, and he has to weigh up how he deals with that, and the later books are very much books about, you know, encroaching mortality and his sense that he is not a superman. And so, in in the latest book, he, he tries to open a door, a locked door to a flat and he shoulders it, doesn't work. He kicks it, that doesn't work. He kicks it again, it works. But for the rest of the book, he's limping <laughs> because he's hurt himself so badly kicking in a door that when he was 40, he would have done it with ease. But that's, you know, that's great because for me, that means I've got, you know, he's got to work in a different way. He's got to operate in a different way. Um, and He's got to use his wiles and his street smarts a lot more because he can't intimidate the way he used to and he can't get into fights. In the, later, in, you know, the latest couple of books, there have been moments where he's almost got in a fight. One of the ones I remember well was with Malcolm Fox, and Fox is going, okay, come on then, I'm 20 years younger than you, I'm going to win this, and Rebus goes, shit, yeah, he's going to win this, so he doesn't get into the fight, Mm. Um, and he can't chase suspects anymore, he's like Frank Cannon, you know, you remember that guy, huge, big, you know, somebody runs away from Rebus, Rebus goes, good luck, pal, you know, phones it in, Um, he just can't, and I love that, I love the fact that he's, he's... He's very aware of of that. And he's looking around him at the world and it doesn't make sense anymore. Someone tries to explain Twitter to him in a book and he goes, what the hell? You know, he can't use social media. You know, he still plays records. He hasn't bought an album since about 1975, you know.
1: Now, the other thing I always wanted to ask you, because uh, we also had his battle, not only drinking, but was smoking all the way through. And I always thought, this guy... He was a smoker. ...must be a smoker who's yeah. dealing with a sort of trying to give up yourself, and you're, you're putting Rebus through it. It's
2: weird. I mean, you know, many smokers have said to me, come on, you must be a smoker. Every time I'm reading the book, just as I'm thinking, oh, I need a cigarette, Rebus likes a cigarette. I don't know what it is. I mean, I, you know, my parents were both smokers, I grew up amongst smokers. When I used to go to the Oxford bar, it was just a fug of smoke. Um, when they banned smoking in bars and you had to go outside, I would actually go outside because that's when all the and people left the bar. Mm. You know? Um, and there was this thing that came out, came out called smirting. Smirting was smoking and flirting. Because <laughs> people would go outside and get chatting to each other because they were all smokers and you end up chatting up people. It was, it was lovely. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I like hanging around smokers. They're interesting people. But I've never smoked. I tried it when I was young. Didn't like it. Um, uh, you know, I just, I got dizzy and sweaty and, sh- and shaky from the nicotine. My mum uh, died of lung cancer when I was 19. So I mean, I had six months of watching my mum, mum deteriorate. That mm. put you off, um, but Rebus just—I thought, yeah, this guy's a smoker.
1: The other thing about Rebus is his taste in music, and music is a huge feature in your books.
2: <clears throat> yeah, well, that's because I'm a frustrated rock star. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, haven't had the, the the amoebas, and haven't had the dancing pigs—the second best punk band in five. You know, I mean, I kind of got out of my system a little bit, but not very much. In the first one or two Rebus novels, he listens to classical music and jazz, because I thought that's what existential loner cops <laughs> would listen to. But I knew nothing about them. And then another crime writer came along called John Harvey, an English crime writer. He would a kind of cop called Resnick, sounds a bit like Rebus, divorced, loves jazz. I thought, oh, Ian, you're in trouble here. These two guys are too similar. So I thought, okay, I'll give Rebus my musical taste, 60s and 70s rock. And then what happened was musicians became fans of the books because of that. And so I got to hang out with musicians, and I got to write stuff for musicians. I got to play with musicians. Um, uh, Van Morrison got in touch and said, you know, I know that Rebus is a big fan of my music. I'm assuming you are too. Would you like to write the introduction to my collected lyrics? (laughs) And having done that, he then said, hey, let's take it on the road. And so I got to interview him on stage like this um, in London, Dublin, Belfast so far. I think we've done five so far. Nerve-wracking, completely nerve-wracking. Um, but I've got to hang up with Van Morrison, and then the last time I was, I was at. A what, van... what
1: was it like? I mean, because you know, how you, if you meet your heroes, sometimes. Yeah, they...
2: really, and sometimes you say, "Don't meet your heroes." I think you should always meet your heroes because they, 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 die, and then you think, "Oh, I wish I'd done it." Uh, John Martin, uh, you know, the latest book is named after a song on a John Martin album. Um, "Rather Be the Devil" is on Solidaire. I once got the chance to meet him. He was eating, he was eating lunch and drinking wine at a restaurant in London. And I just I bottled it, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't go up and say hello. Uh, and then, of course, a year or two later, he's dead, and, that, and I never got a chance to do it. So the last time was at, at Van Morrison uh, backstage, at, I think in, in Belfast, and uh, uh, Jimmy Page comes up to say hello. You go, what? <laughs> so got, I got, can I get my photograph? Get my photograph yeah. taken? So I
1: got my photograph taken with Jimmy Page. You know, Bagger got, off Jimmy, can't you see I've, I'm talking to Yeah, I yet. mean, I've
2: got to meet Mick Jagger, I've got to meet Keith Richards. I mean, I've got to meet all these people through putting music in the books, and the books have so much music in them. But the story I was going to tell you was about a friend of mine. No, he wasn't a friend of mine. A guy called Jackie Levin. Jackie Leaven was a Scottish singer songwriter. I was a big fan of his music, I thought Rebus would be as well. I put some Jackie Levin music in one of the books. I didn't know Jackie was a big fan of my books. He's reading the book, bloody hell, I'm in it. He got in touch with a publisher, put us in touch with each other, we became friends. He said, I'm doing a, 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 an event at Celtic Connections, a big music festival in Glasgow. Do you want to come on stage and do something? I said, sure. So I wrote a story called Jackie Leave and Said, which was about some of the themes in his songs. He then wrote some new songs to reflect back on the themes in the story, and we did it as a 90-minute stage show. And it was a big hit, and so we were asked to do it again in Edinburgh, at the festival in Edinburgh, and we recorded it and put it out as an album. And, um, and so we toured with the album, uh, so that's as close to being in a band as I was ever going to get. Then we were doing a show in Belfast, and his manager phoned up and said, look, Jackie can't make it, he's quite ill, I went, what's up? And he hadn't told anybody, he had cancer, and he was dead three days later. So when I was writing the Rebus comeback book, it was at a time when I was listening to a lot of Jackie's music. So the first Rebus comeback book, is the title is from a misheard Jackie Levin lyric, And the second one, Saints of the Shadow Bible, is a line in one of his songs that I'd always wanted to ask him what it meant. The Saints of the Shadow Bible following me from bar to bar into eternity. I thought, what does that mean? And because he was dead by then, I couldn't ask him. So I wrote a book about it instead. Um, So those two books were kind of memorials to Jackie Levin. The story I was going to tell you very quickly though, went on tour. He said, what do you want on your rider? He phoned me up. He said, what do you want on your rider? I went, "What's what's a rider? He said, it's your backstage requirements, what you want in the dressing room. I went, I'm a writer, we get up a glass of water if we're lucky. So he said, I said, you're the musician, Jackie, you do it. He went, okay, fine. First dressing room, shared dressing room, big dressing room, shared Royal, no, what was it? Royal Festival Hall in London. I walk in, Jackie's sitting there tuning his guitar, his side of the room, fresh white towels, little mini bar there, little fridge with stuff in it, Fresh fruit got some chocolate bars here, we've got sandwiches, we've got wraps, tapas, we've got white wine, red wine, we've got Jack Daniels, we've got water. We've got My side of the room, nothing. <laughs> All right? Um, so I think, well, should I say something? I don't then this big burly skinhead backstage guy kicks the door in and comes in and goes, which one of you fuckers ordered a haggis? <laughs> Jackie just points at me. Everywhere we went that tour, everywhere, one uncooked haggis for Mr Rankin. All it said on my side of the rider.
1: And all of this is thanks to a 70-year-old ex-cop called Rebus. And in fact, after this, you're going back to Scotland, but end of June, early July, Rebus Fest. Yeah. Celebrating
2: 30 years of Rebus with a weekend at the end of June. We're going to have live music. We're going to have a a guy who used to play with Jackie, uh, Michael Weston King, is going to come and do a set, some of his own songs and some of Jackie's songs. Uh, We're going to have a a couple of other musicians whose work I enjoy and I think Rebus would like are going to play. It's going to be a Rebus pub quiz. I've got to come up with the questions. I've not done that yet. Um, There's going to be walking tours. There's going to be an exhibition at the Writers Museum of early stuff to do with knots and crosses, which will include the rejection letter, no, the letter from my agent, naming the five publishers who turned down knots and crosses. <laughs> it was sent to six publishers and the first five turned it down. So, name and shame. Um, <laughs> manuscripts and stuff like that. There's going to be me on stage with a, a, a retired cop and a serving detective talking about changes in the police in Scotland. Um, all sorts of stuff going on, just for a weekend, it'll be lovely.
1: You got married when you're at university and you're still with the same the same woman. Did, did you, do you involve, does she get involved in your writing, do you discuss plots and things? Or, or is Yeah. A very I, I do.
2: Miranda is, um, she reads a lot of crime fiction, which is fantastic. Um, so she's very good in plot. Um, she's a first person. If I'm having trouble, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm stuck, I'll come downstairs, sit with her, and we'll bounce ideas around, and I'll go back up. Um, and she's the first person. It's, nobody sees my first draft. The first drafts are really rough, sketchy, just does this main plot work. The second draft. The, the characters become three-dimensional and, and there's more, the writing is of better quality, it's not as rushed. I'll show her either the second or third draft. I mean, the latest one, Rather Be the Devil, you know, and it's always nerve-wracking. She hands me back the physical manuscript and it'll just be a big question mark in the margin. That's the worrying ones, it's just a big question mark in the margins. She'll say, information dump, you've got to find a different way of doing this. Um, she'll say, I don't like this character. It's the reason that Rebus has had so many female relationships that haven't worked out. It's because my wife finds all the women I've given Rebus to play with, she goes, boring, boring, boring. <laughs> um, she likes Deborah Quant. So Deborah Quant's been around for a couple of books now, because Miranda likes Deborah, that's okay. But in the latest one, the one I was going to tell you about was um, 78, October 78, a murder in a hotel in Edinburgh. Uh, the kind of t- plot twist there around key cards for the rooms. She said in the margin, wouldn't it be physical keys? When were key cards invented as a thing? Of course. Would it be physical keys for the rooms, not key cards? So I had to go back and look into that, and yes, she was right. At that time, it would probably have been a a physical key, not a card. So that was all corrected. So by the time the third or fourth draft goes to my publisher, it's had the corrections done from Miranda's edit. So when my actual editor says, Ian, I've got a few suggestions, I go, wait a minute, pal. (laughs) Sorry, it's already been edited. So then we have a fight. Then we have a fight. Then the Americans get it the Americans go, got to change it all. Got to change pavement to sidewalk. The boot of the car becomes the trunk of the car. Rebus can no longer wake up with a fag in his mouth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Flesh Market Close, which is the title of one of the books, which is The Real Street in Edinburgh, becomes Flesh Market Alley. (laughs) The title of the book is Flesh Market Alley in America. Then American fans go to Edinburgh and they go, Where's Flesh Market Alley? Why is it called Close? And I go, because my publishers think you're stupid.
1: <laughs>
2: and people who read crime fiction are not stupid. We all know this.
1: Do you keep writing because you can or because you want to? I mean, do, do, you, do you see at some stage, just like Rebus? You mean, no, Rebus at some stage is going to stop. But for yeah. you, I mean, you obviously don't need to write. I mean, you're one of no. the most successful authors. Yeah. But, so,
2: you know, look at, look at people like JK Rowling, John Grisham, None of these people need to write for the money, they write because A, it's terrific fun, you're a kid again, playing with all your imaginary friends and playing role-playing games and let's pretend games, and it's how you make sense of the world. It's how I make sense of the world is by writing stuff down, always have done, trying to make sense of it, trying to form a shape of it. Um, All of that I get from writing. It's cathartic, it's therapeutic. If I walk out here tonight and I'm crossing the street and someone nearly runs me over, I can go back to my hotel room and kill them. I just do it on paper, you know. And the car took the next bend far too fast, crashed, and his head fell off. <laughs> so it's, it's a way of getting all that dark stuff out of your system. It's why crime writers in real life are really well-balanced individuals. The people you've got to watch out for are the romantic fiction writers, <laughs> because they get rid of none of that dark stuff. Who do you like reading? I mean, who do you enjoy? I mean, I read a lot of crime fiction. Um, you know, I, I, it's, I don't know, I, I, every year, I, almost every year, I reread Jekyll and Hyde. I love it. I, I almost always reread The Primary Miss Brodie every year, Muriel Sparks' novel, because I did my PhD on Muriel Spark, I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, I read a lot, uh, Michael Connolly's books I like, James Elroy's books I like. Um, in Scotland, Denise Mina, Val McDermott, um, Kate Atkinson, fantastic writers. Um, you know, I, I whenever I go somewhere, I'm always looking for the crime writers, you know, so uh, Paul Cleave. Um, I just read his latest book recently, loved it. It's about a, a crime writer with Alzheimer's who may have killed someone and has just forgotten it. <laughs> or it may be from one of his books. It's a really intriguing idea, premise. Um, uh, Paul Thomas, a uh, Kiwi crime writer, I, I like his books a lot. Um, Are you a big
1: fan of the of, of the Scandies? I mean, the
2: not hugely. I'll tell you. What, I mean, I, you know, they do some interesting stuff. And Scott's crime fiction is often compared to them. You know, small countries, mm. quite dark countries, quite noirish. They're very rococo. They've, they're kind of Hollywood. You know, I mean, there's, there's a Harry Hall book. Um, jo Nesbo's character Harry Hall, and he's he's tracking a serial killer called the, the Snowman, mm. who leaves a snowman at a scene of every crime if you want to be a successful serial killer, don't leave a snowman <laughs> at the scene of every crime. People will suss out quite early on. I think there's a serial killer at work here. Harry gets his throat cut and he goes, oh, and he, 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 Rebus would go to hospital. Harry goes back to his hotel room and stitches himself back up with a sewing kit. <laughs> That's the difference between Scandinavian crime fiction and my crime fiction. My guy would go, I need to go to hospital now. They sew themselves up And a kind of Jack Reacher, in kind a of way. Indestructible characters. Um, you know, Unless it's, they're it's... played
1: by Tom Cruise, of
2: course. Yeah, really, Tom Cruise. There's a bit of casting for you. <laughs> there's a bit of casting for you.
1: Hey, do you, um, are you a physical book person? I mean, do you have a yeah. Kindle?
2: Yeah, physical books all the time. I mean, um, if I'm going on a cruise or something, if I, was on, you know, if I was on a long holiday, I'd maybe take an iPad with me and I'd have some books as backup but I prefer a physical book. And, you know, coming on this trip, I brought three or four books with me, books that I'm happy to leave behind. So what I'll do is I'll, uh, you know, if I'm in an airport, I'll leave it in the, in, on a seat in the airport if once I've read it, or I'll leave it on the plane, or I'll leave it in a hotel, in reception or something, and just put a little note in it saying, I finished this, loved it, you might like it too.
1: Because the funny thing is, when a few years ago, people were saying, this wouldn't be happening, none of us would be here. The book mm. was dead, it was all over. Well, the book
2: was never dead. The, the means of transmission Seem to be changing. But you know, people were still going to be reading books. They'd be reading them on their phones, they'd be reading them on their, iP- their iPads or their, their Kindles or whatever. And people still do that, that's but fine. Were,
1: but there is a resurgence too of the physical book, isn't
2: there? Yeah, resurgence. I mean, I think what's happened is that people have decided they like the tactile nature of it and they read in a different way. I think when you're skimming on a screen, it's almost like a, like a TV screen, it's, it just kinda blurs a little bit. And you can't tell one book from another. You go, which book is this I'm reading just now? It's just a page. Um, the screens all look the same, whereas with a physical book you've got a gorgeous thing, you've got a tactile thing. And when I go to somebody's house, I don't want them to hand, I don't want them to hand me their Kindle and their iPod and say, here's my record collection and my book <laughs> collection. I want to look at bookshelves and I want to flick through their CDs or their LPs. I want to get a sense of what that person's personality is. And, and you don't get that from a, from a screen. You get it from a, from a physical thing. And books have become more beautiful objects. I think this is the point that's been made, is that books have become more, you know, things you want to own.
1: Hard to get an author to um, autograph an iPad or a Kindle. Um, people do Kindle. it. You, you, <laughs> no, you
2: autograph the back of it. You autograph the back, people do that. I've autographed Kindles, I've autographed iPads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've autographed um, people's crash helmets. I mean, people have weird things. A woman once got me to autograph her book. She was in Stirling, in Scotland. I'll her book. And a year later, she came back and she said, look, and she sort of pulled down the back of her blouse and she'd had it tattooed on the
1: back of her neck. Oh. <laughs> hey, you said before, that, like, meeting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> meeting, meeting your heroes and, and, and the people that you sort of, you know, were too shy to go and talk to. Do you think people, anyone's too shy to come and talk to you? Because they do the pilgrimage over, don't they? They go to the Oxford and...
2: Yeah, I know know that people are a little bit shy sometimes. People come up and say, I want a book signed, it's for my husband. Where is he? He's over there, but he he can't bring himself to talk to you. Uh, Had it happen with a mayor of a a city in uh, New Zealand just a few days ago. Um, So it does happen. Um, But, you know, I'm fairly approachable. Writers usually are. It's a solitary occupation And we're very happy in solitude, but when we're not writing, we're very we're delighted to get into the world. I mean, we are Jekyll and Hyde characters. As a writer these days, you've got to be, you've got to do the solitary thing, and live inside your own head, and then we jump it into the world and do things like this, or do interviews and do radio and stuff. All you know, appear on TV documentaries. Years ago, a few years ago, I did a TV documentary series on evil. For a, a TV channel in the UK. And that was extraordinary. I got access to all the, you know, I, I was exorcised by the chief exorcist of the Diocese of Rome. I got to go to death row in Texas and interview a guy, telephone, telephone, plate glass, bulletproof window between us. Um, I got to talk to experts on the devil. I got to talk to people that had interviewed serial killers and arrested serial killers. I got access to all of that. It was an extraordinary experience. And at the end of it, I still find it very hard to point to an individual and say, you are irredeemably evil, but I could point to an act and say that was an act of evil and you committed it. There was, there's one um, exception to that rule and he died just a few days ago and that's Ian Brady. Now, unbeknownst to me, the director, producer of the program got in touch with Brady's mother and said, can we interview you about your son? She passed that on to her son in the asylum he was in And he got in touch with the director and said, no, no, Mr. Rankin talks to me. He doesn't talk to my mother, he talks to me. And the director said, do you you want to do it? I said, no, I ain't doing that. Because once that guy gets inside your head, he ain't coming out again. You can't unmeet him. Were you tempted? No, not for a second. I'd read a book that he wrote, which is called The Gates of Janus. Mm. uh, And it's a book about why we should revere serial killers. They're a higher life form than us. They are the ultimate hunter-gatherers. I just thought, No. I mean, the guy's intelligent, he, w- he was intelligent, oh. the it, but
1: there's no way I want
2: that guy inside my head. Good on you. And, uh, yeah, so I wouldn't do it.
1: All right, now listen, we, uh, this has been fascinating, yakking away, but we've got some time for if you wanna ask questions. How it's gonna work, we're gonna have mics down the front here halfway up the back and up in the circle. If you've got a question, Whoa, come to the mic because you're going to be sort of sitting, waiting. And I know you're waiting, you want to take a photo. I want, take, I want
2: to take a, is that okay if I take a photograph of the audience? The biggest audience I've ever had. I've got to get a photograph.
1: I'm going to take a photo of you taking a photo of the biggest audience. How do I get, I
2: can't even get you all in. There's so many of you. Wave. I'm going to have to do a few of these. Hang on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming out, folks. That's great. Thank you. All right. I yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> up even at the top there. Hello. My God, you're at the top.
1: Now, wow. who's got a question?
2: Nobody. Let's go home.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's right. Come on. Yeah, just if you, if you come up and if you're wanting to ask one, come to the mics now so we don't have the sort of the... Wait, wait, wait. I hope you're coming to east. You weren't trying to sneak out, otherwise you'd have to ask a question on the, on, on the way out. Have we got mics upstairs as well? There's mics on the, uh, yes, down, where are the mics in the circle? There are mics there, yes? Yeah, okay. Okay, so either please. side.
0: Is it on? It yeah. is on. Okay. Um, I'm just curious whether you think that you'd be able to make Malcolm Fox as popular as Rebus Ooh. in time. Because mm. a lot of people don't like him that much now. But I wondered <laughs> if, it, yeah. if it's something that you're working towards, if something happens to Rebus.
2: No, no, no. I'm, I mean, yeah, when Rebus retired and I invented Malcolm Fox, I thought, okay, this, he's an interesting. to me, he was a really interesting character. He was more like a spy than anything else. Internal affairs have got an extraordinary amount of power at their disposal and a lot of technology at their disposal, and they're more like Le Carre-style spies than anything else. But the challenge for me was, this is a guy who follows the rules. This is a guy who's a team player. You've got to be in internal affairs. How do I make him interesting? He's not a maverick. He's not a natural maverick. But I think he's now found his niche. He's moved to police headquarters, Gart He's a suit, he's behind a desk. That's what he does well. He's not on the streets. He doesn't, he's tried that and he's not good at it. He's not comfortable in that role. So I don't think I could do that. What I would love to do is do a Siobhan Clark book. I would love to do that. And the reason it hasn't happened yet is because I think I said it earlier, I get a theme I want to explore, a plot that allows me to explore that theme, then I think, which character do I need? And never yet have I gone, oh, this is Siobhan's story. This is a story that only Siobhan can tell. Um, I would like it if it happened. In the early books, there aren't many strong women characters because I didn't feel comfortable writing from a woman's perspective. And there aren't many successful male characters crime writers with female characters, until Mama Ramotswe came along. My next door neighbor but one, Alexander McCall Smith, did it, interestingly. Um, lots of women with male characters, you know, Ruth Rendell, P.D. James, you name it, but hardly any men with... And I, so I didn't feel comfortable. And then female cops, women cops start saying, I like Siobhan, she's quite realistic, so I started to do more with her. And by the end of the Rebus series, first time round, by exit music, she had as much time on the page as he did. So maybe, maybe one day, I'll get the Chivon book.
1: Alexander McCall put you in one of his books, didn't he? Allie, uh, uh, Alexander McCall Scotland. Smith
2: has put me in three or four of his books, the mm. bugger. And I do say to him, revenge is a dish that <laughs> is going to be served very cold. The first one, he had me hand a, a rare painting over to the Conservative Association <laughs> because they were the proper owners of it. I said, that wouldn't happen. Uh, then he had somebody fire, fire a bow and arrow at me. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get my own bike one of these days. <laughs> Anybody else got a question?
1: We've got a question up the top Hello. on the left Hello.
2: there. Where are Hi. you? Wave, wave, I'm wave, up wave, here. wave. Waving. Woo. Other way. Other, way. Which other way? way. Other way.
0: Other way. Hi. Up there. Hi. Oh, I maybe. just wondered, okay. um, you know, talking about putting real people into your books, how you felt about appearing in Alexander McCall Smith's books. Yeah, how I, mean, I felt about doing how it. How do you feel? it? Is
2: that? Well, I mean, oh. he came and asked permission. He did ask permission. Um, I mean, he's pretty. He's pretty fun that way. Uh, I, I, he's a he's a great guy. I, you can't have a, you can't. Uh, he makes me feel really stupid, because he's a professor of moral philosophy. Uh, and he's written books on sleepwalking as a defence uh, in cri- criminal courts, he's written about ethics. He's written case books, case studies of Botswanan law. Um, you, you talk to him for two minutes, and you get on this incredibly high level of philosophical conversation and debate, which isn't what I want at nine (laughs) in the morning in Starbucks, which is when I tend to bump into them. You know, I just want, I've got my paper, I want my coffee, I just want to sit there and read the bloody paper. I don't want to talk about ethics. At that time of the morning, ethics is a county
1: in England, as (laughs) far as I'm concerned. We've got a question up here on on my right, on the, the top. Rebus seems to be very fond of New Zealand wine and New Zealand music. Is there any particular New Zealand music that's top of the pops for him?
2: Oh, bless you. Yeah, yeah that allows me to tell a story. The first time I toured New Zealand, um, I had some dollars left over, and I was at the airport, and that, the night before in my hotel room, there'd been a TV advert for an album called Rain, Steam and Speed by a band called The Mutton Birds. I thought, well, they sound pretty good. So there was a little record shop in the airport, and there was the album. So I bought the CD, took it home, listened to it, and thought, what a great album. And there was a song on it called The Falls. And I had a line in it that went, there must be a story behind all that. And I thought, Ian, that's what your books are about. They're about the story behind the story, behind something happening below the surface, just behind the surface of things, and about myth, myth myth-making. So I wrote to Don McGlashan and said, I want to call my next book The Falls and it's gonna have that line in it, is that okay? And he got in touch and said, fine. Oh, by the way, I'm coming to Edinburgh to play a gig soon. So I got to meet him, and then I met him in Auckland a few years later on. We went for for a couple of pints. Then he played Edinburgh again fairly recently, and I met him again. So yeah, Rebus would definitely have the mutton birds on his playlist, no doubt about that. Would he have anything from the Dunedin sound on his playlist? Possibly not, it's a bit too young for him, but Siobhan would. So Siobhan, like me, would be listening to The Chills. And tomorrow, no, not tomorrow, what's tomorrow? Saturday. Is, is it Friday? Is it Friday? Sunday, Sunday lunchtime, I'm meeting Martin Phillips uh, of the Chills for a drink. I'll be drinking. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> is there another question up the top there?
2: Balcony, yep. okay, up the very top. Hello. Hi, as
1: a writer, do you ever get stuck?
2: Oh, do you ever get stuck? Oh, touch wood, 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 (laughs) wood. There's some wood there. Uh, No, Um, I mean, not very stuck, not very stuck. Uh, um, I've never had to give up a book or or really put a book away for any length of time. The thing is, when I start the book, there's a sort of internal energy and an internal shape that I can't quite see, but it pushes it along and pushes it along. Now, my wife will tell you something different. She was interviewed for for a documentary a few years ago about how I write my books. She was interviewed under duress. she didn't like being on screen, but she said, Ian always has a problem at page 65. (laughs) And other writers said, oh, my God. And especially if you're writing a crime novel, okay, think about it. You've got a crime, you've got a murder usually. So you open with a crime, you open with a murder. Then you've got certain things that happen, crime scene, autopsy, who's the victim, go and talk to the family, find out who their friends were, where do they work, interview them, you've set up your murder squad. That takes about 65 pages. Then you go, what do I do now? So what you hope is that in those first 65 pages, you've introduced some relationships, some mysteries from this person's past, something they could be hiding, something to do with their job, etc., etc., that will take you to the next. But Miranda, my wife says, I, come, I often come downstairs and go, I don't know what I'm doing next. I don't know where I'm going next. And that can last for a few hours or a few days. But eventually, I'll think, oh no, hang on a minute you're the person who was in the hotel that night, and you're the person who did that, and I can start to see the connections. And then about two-thirds of the way through the first draft, I go, the light comes on, and I go, okay, I know what's happening here. I know who did it. Thank goodness for Miranda. Thank goodness for Miranda. And she because she reads a lot of crime fiction, she's very good at getting me out of those holes.
1: Yeah. Sophia, we have a question here. She's a friend of mine. Um, uh, up there. There's is that a question
2: for her? I hope no, only,
0: only for you. Only, yeah, what's Ian so reading really like? am to the question. Uh, where does if true crime is a launching pad? Sometimes, where does true crime end and and crime writing begin? Is it, does it become does true crime become boring at some point to you?
2: Um, I, I mean, you know, I'm not a huge aficionado of true crime books. It was it's just something that tells me something about the way the world is or about the human condition. And I'll just use the template of it. I'll use a template. I mean, sometimes I use quite a lot of it. Somebody brought up. Uh, uh, the, the Impossible Dead, which is a Malcolm Fox book, the, 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 the kind of mystery in that is very heavily based on our true story of a um, SNP supporter and lawyer who might have been bumped off by MI5 uh, in the 80s um, or may have committed suicide, um, there's a bit of a mystery about that. But, um, so yeah, sometimes it's a lot of it and sometimes it's only a tiny, tiny bit of it that I need. Um, I, sometimes I don't know that it's true and it turns out to be true. So, the first Rebus novel, and I told this story last night, um, you know, I went to the, it was fiction about someone bumping off kids, and I went to the police station to ask some questions, not realizing that actually this had happened. A child had been abducted from outside Edinburgh. At that point, it wasn't a murder investigation, it was a missing persons inquiry, but it turned out into a murder investigation with seven victims, but I had no idea. And I walked into the police station, and these two cops said, really? So I became a suspect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because, you know,
2: this guy walks in at a police station and starts asking you questions about this child murder, and you how stupid was, this, was I at that age? Um, and so I didn't know that I was writing what was based on a true story. I didn't know it was based on a true story until they told me it was. That was kind of weird. So I became a suspect in a murder inquiry, I was interested. Um, and that's happened a couple of times in the books. I've written about it, and then a couple of years later, it's come true. Hide and Seek actually was quite similar, the second Rebus novel. Um, there was a kind of there was something that had happened that I didn't know about, and then but then what happened was when it was revealed, um, I got a kind of kudos. People said to me, "Oh my God, so you knew a year ago that this was going on, and it's had been revealed." <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. I, you know, mum's the word.
1: Are you waiting for a question up the top there? Yep. Yeah, let's be the, the last the last one up the top. Go ahead.
2: Okay, I'm Thomas May, a comfy we for almost neighbours.
1: Okay.
0: I,
2: the, where you escaped the comments, I didn't. So after <laughs> well, I. Well, you drunk, escaped, I you're started, here. There.
1: Hang on, is the translation coming up on the screen? <laughs>
2: <laughs> i say you mentioned in one of your novels, you mentioned West Lothian as um, the Badlands. The Badlands, yep. Well, would that be anything to do with um, my village, had a, the first murder in 140 years? It was called The Vampire Killing. Have you read that? I've heard of the vampire killing. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember much about it, but I do. I, was it not a was it was not, of, was it not an urban myth? Was it not an urban myth? The vampire killing. I can't remember. West Lothian is a kind of coal mining area um, to the west of, of Edinburgh, um, and it is, it is in. It feels a lot like where I grew up in Fife. It's lots of little coal mining towns. Um, quite. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, there's social issues, social problems there, which is why I use it. Sometimes it gives me things that I can't get from Edinburgh. The city of Edinburgh doesn't have everything I need. The um, thing about, you know, we're talking about real cities and things, if I've got an area of social deprivation, I tend to invent it. So I'll invent a village or I'll invent an area of Edinburgh. Uh, Pillmuir is not a real place. The Garibaldi Estate is not a real place because I don't want to disrespect people who are living in these areas because they're based on real places. But there are a lot of people living there who are doing their damnedest and trying these good places to live. I don't want to disrespect them, so I do tend to invent places as much as possible. And I did that even in my very first book, The Flood, which wasn't a crime novel, but was set in a completely fictitious Fife mining town of Carr's Den, which was not at all Carr Den where I grew up. Um, sadly, I didn't, I didn't make it fictional enough, and everybody who lived in Carden Den thought they could see themselves in that book which is why I had to invent
1: John Rebus, a guy who definitely wasn't based on me. Listen, it's been absolutely fabulous. One thing I did, I just wanna mention now, we must think, because you know how the festival works, to get someone, uh, to help get some of Ian's caliber here, we rely so much on our sponsors, and I really want to acknowledge uh, the festival silver sponsor Craig's Investment Partners um, for the session of uh, the festival. Um, we really do appreciate. We appreciate you too. How often do we get a chance um, to come along and hear the lead singer from the second best punk band in <laughs> Fife. Thanks Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Ian. Thank you, Matt. Hey, look, it's such a great, what a fantastic guy. Yes.
0: Our 2017 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website writersfestival.co.nz